Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning services to you each and every week. We are currently in our sermon series, Stories of Christmas. In this series, we are walking through Luke 2 and the stories of different people who played a role in the Christmas story. From Mary and Joseph to the shepherds and the Magi, each of these stories will culminate in the birth of Jesus. So join us as we share the stories of Christmas. Good morning. Hey, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, If you have your Bibles with you this morning, whether it's that analog version where you can still feel the pages as they go through your fingers, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today, although we're just going to have free reign to bounce all over the scriptures as we see fit. But go there for your main text. If you're pulling it up digitally, you can grab that on your phone and scroll along. We're going through the stories of Christmas. And I know that if you're like me, many of you in the room, you already have a nativity, um, it means birth story. You all, you have a nativity. I don't know if it was here in St. Thomas or in Vanderbilt Children's or some other hospital out in the world. Maybe it was a home birth or something really dramatic that happened on the side of I-65. I have no idea. You have a nativity, um, but so does Jesus. And none of your nativities have a ceramic set that you put up in your home. Um, mine doesn't either, although it might, maybe it should. I have no idea, um, but Jesus' does. And so you're putting up your nativity, and you're setting up all the characters, and we'll get to the idea of wise men and whether they were actually there or not in the moment. But think about just for a second, as we round out this idea of what character we're studying next, the shepherds. What do they look like? Are they old men with big beards, like the Bedouin guys that you sing with wrinkly faces, and they're out there like getting real tan in the sun watching sheep? Um, are, Are they decidedly Jewish because you just think that they probably had to be at this particular moment in this particular story? Is it possible that they were Gentiles on a nearby field? Um, Was it even adults? Could it perhaps have been younger children who were out there watching the fields? Tons of shepherding references that we have reference the idea that it was kids out watching flocks, perhaps even girls or all your shepherds males. There's a whole lot to this story, and we want to dive in today a little bit deeper to find out who fits underneath your nativity. Like, who's there alongside the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and and Joseph, the earthly father? Who's, Who's there to view the baby asleep on the hay? And why does it matter? Like, why are each of those people there? And what is it that each of those people looks like and acts like and feels like? And why were they assembled for that particular nativity moment? And then beyond that, how do you relate to them? 
are you related in any way to the characters in the story? I think that's what we'll uncover today. And before we even enter into Luke chapter 2, I'm going to kick it back off with Luke chapter 1 because I've been spending a lot of time there this season knowing that Luke wrote his gospel for a specific audience in a specific time in a specific way. And he says many have undertaken in Luke chapter 1 verse 1 to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled, love that word fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, looked into the story, uncovered the truths, tried to figure out the different parts of it, like I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too, this is Luke writing, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. And we know that Luke wrote his gospel decades after Jesus Christ had been arrested, tried, convicted, crucified, and then resurrected. He's writing his gospel, like like a really safe assumption could be anywhere from 70 to 90 AD. A lot of scholars kind of zero in on the year 85, plus or minus, would have been a widely accepted date range for this book. And he's writing to this guy, Theophilus, to make sure that he understands with certainty the things that he'd been taught are true. Because here's Theophilus, 30 to 40 years after Jesus was arrested, crucified, tried, convicted, all the things, all Hearing those stories, knowing the idea of the miracles that he did, hearing about the teachings that he taught, understanding the claims that were made about Christ. And Luke wants to ensure that Theophilus and that all of us have certainty in the things that we've been taught. So he writes these things down, and the particular parts of the story that are included for us matter to us. So we land today, we're going to start in Luke chapter 2, right at the beginning, even though we read part of that last week, and eventually include the shepherds that we talk about today. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And if Luke is including the detail of the census that was being taken in the entire Roman world, he wants to couch this in a particular historical moment, an economic moment, a social and a culturally relevant moment. Why? To give us certainty for the things that we've been taught. So that the story of the nativity and the little people that we put as figurines in our house and manipulate all around aren't just characters in a fable, but there's a reality present where we are. He says this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. He's giving the details. Why? So that Theophilus and all of us can have certainty in the things that we've heard. And everyone went to their own towns to register. So Joseph, that's who we talked about last week, and if you missed it, man, I invite you to go back and listen um, to the whole idea of Joseph and his important place in this nativity story. Went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. It matters that Joseph was from the line of David, and Luke wants us to know it. And he doesn't want us to miss that important detail because there's part of the story that will be made more certain to us if we understand it. So he reminds us again and again. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. And every single detail reminding you that Luke includes is there for a reason. If he said it, he wanted to use it to create certainty in our minds. Because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds. Okay, here we go. This is the story of the day. And there were shepherds, verse 8, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. You know, angels coming on the scene always invoke terror. I would be offended if I was an angel, if every time somebody saw me they were afraid. 
And here they are. And so the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Why? I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Who are the shepherds in your story? They are somebody for whom a Savior had been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Okay, we could keep going, and we'll, we'll pick that back up a, a little bit later. Okay, Bible study tip for all of us. And this, does, and this is if you're studying the Christmas story. I get sidetracked sometimes. This is if you're studying the Joseph story, not Joseph, mother, father of Jesus, but Joseph, even back in Genesis. This is if you're studying the parting of the Red Sea. This is if you're studying the Psalms. This is if you're studying Revelation. Most stories, most narratives, most passages have layers of meaning that are meant to be explored. You could even scratch that out and say all. Every single one of the stories that we read, every single one of the passages that we attempt to glean something from, they have layers and layers and layers of meaning that are meant to be explored. So the presence of the shepherds at the nativity can't just be this one thing that you've known since you were four years old and your grandma told you, and you just always know, well, I know why the shepherds were called, because there's another layer there that God wants to peel back and let you see differently this year. There's something about this story that ought to make sense for the first time ever, no matter how many times you've visited it, no matter how many times you've read it. The Christmas story, above all stories in Scripture, can be that thing that we automatically in our minds go, oh yeah, been there, heard that. And I have the nice little ceramic nativity in my home to look at as a reference point of, of what God did and why he did it. But there's more to the story. There always more, is more to the story. We don't want to just zero in on one lifelong lesson and talk about the same lifelong lesson over and over and over again in favor of the fact that God might choose to expose something new to us. It matters that there were shepherds, and it matters that they were shepherds. And when you think of shepherds today, I want you to think of a couple of different things, and they're opposing views because we don't know exactly what Scripture is telling us in this moment, and we can take it in two different directions. When you think of the idea of shepherds in the picture, I want you to think of a respected profession. I want you to think of the fact that Moses was a shepherd. I want you to think of the fact that King David, who got anointed to be king over Israel, came from being a shepherd. I want you to think of the book of Ezekiel, where God looks at the ways that the religious leaders had really prostituted themselves and led the people astray. Like, I want you to look at the fact that when God Almighty on high wants to give us a metaphor for who he is to us, he says in Ezekiel 34, I will be the good shepherd. I'll take care of my sheep. I'll make sure that their wounds are tended and that they're fed good grass, and that they have clean water. I will take care of my people. This idea, this profession, this historically pictured view of what somebody could do vocationally in the world, it had merit. And we'll see even more as we dive further into Scripture, particularly the New Testament where Jesus tells us who he is. But you can also think in that same moment of an intertestamental between the old and new rejection and a downplaying of that vocation, and the scorn that had come to be associated with shepherding socially and economically, and even spiritually, as this was a group of people who had been deemed and designated unclean and unworthy of coming into holy places to bring sacrifice. Okay, there's this picture of Jewish writings, and we go to the Old Testament all the time, and we understand that those are the Hebrew scriptures, but there's more than that, and we don't pay a whole lot of attention to that as, as, as Christian Western people, but there's this thing called the Talmud, and it was written in 70 AD or beyond. 
as a way to preserve the oral tradition that had come from generations. Because good Jews, good Hebrews, they looked at the scriptures, they looked at the Torah, they looked at the worship songs written in Psalms, but they also had a powerful oral tradition that was passed down from generation to generation to generation. And just like any good oral tradition, at some point you got to write that down or we're going to forget it. And so we get to the Talmud, which is composed of two different books. One is called the Mishnah, and that's the actual oral tradition, what we do, how we practice it, what it means. But then also the Gomorrah, it's the commentary for how to understand that. All of that was written around the same time that Luke is writing his gospel account of Jesus. The Talmud is distinctly void of almost any good reference to Jesus, but it does have quite a bit of how we should understand shepherds. It was less than the best. It was really a, kind of a, a dirty, unclean, difficult way to approach these people as, as basic bottom feeders in society. And so Randy Alcorn writes this. He says, while poetic sections of scripture, those Old Testament passages, deal really positively in giving us great allusions to shepherding, scholars believe that these references reflect a literary ideal and not the reality of the world that Jesus was born into. Those first visitors to come and visit the baby in the manger, those first visitors to the newborn, they shadowed what Jesus was, but also who Jesus was for. Later on in his ministry life, he tells his disciples and anyone who's gathered around to hear him teach, he says, I am the good shepherd. And when they heard him say, I am the good shepherd, they would have immediately gone back to Ezekiel chapter 34, where God said, I myself will be the good shepherd of my people. And this is what Jesus says about himself. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life, John 10, 11, for the sheep. If you go towards the end of the New Testament, we're rounding out this early church life. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, may the God who did that for Jesus, who is what? How's he referenced? The great shepherd. Like there's a juxtaposition that we're going to have to reconcile with. Like if Jesus is a great shepherd and shepherds weren't viewed very positively, rabbis said that shepherds' testimony couldn't be used in a court of law. Rabbinic Judaism had long rejected the idea of a shepherd being an upstanding member of society, and yet the New Testament basically closes its letters out to the early church saying this, that Jesus is the great what? Shepherd of the sheep and we're inspired to know from this text and the fact that shepherds were the first to come and visit the baby Jesus that we're the sheep you and I are Isaiah 53 we're the sheep that went astray we're the ones who are sinful we're the ones who are abused we're the ones who are dirty and rotten and in need of what a good shepherd and so in Ezekiel 34 God says I myself will take care of my sheep and that's what we get in Jesus in Luke chapter 5, just a few chapters later, he says this, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it's easy to read that word sinners and automatically start going through a laundry list of everything that you think is sinful or everything that you think is not sinful in the world. It's easy to look at the idea of the Bible's reference to sinners and say, oh, well, that's the people that do all of the bad stuff. But we should look at it as people who are on the outside, not the worthy, not the religious elite, not the people who were included, anybody who was excluded for any 
meritable reason would have been considered a sinner. This is how you and I relate to this text. It's the picture of those outcasts being called and the picture of these outcasts, the me and the you being called. If you keep reading in John 11, uh, 10, you should this week. Start with verse 11. Jesus is like, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he says the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. That man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing about the sheep. Are the people that are watching the flocks by night just outside the city of Bethlehem, are they owners? No, it's third shift. They're the hired hands. And Jesus' description of them is that if a wolf came to destroy the flock, they would have been out the door to protect themselves, not him. Because he's the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I'm the good shepherd, continuing on, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And he says, I have other sheep, ones who are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Are the shepherds that are outside of Bethlehem that night, are they even part of that Jewish flock to begin with? Or are they from another nation? Is it God inviting Gentile? Who are the shepherds in your nativity? Are they Jewish? I don't know. Can you ask them for me? Or are they perhaps Gentile herders? There's a picture to understand that according to the Talmud, it would have been wrong, illegal, immoral, unallowable for anybody to shepherd their flock that close to the holy city of Jerusalem. If these were just regular, ordinary, everyday sheep herders, they would have been much deeper into the wilderness than just adjacent to that city. The only sheep that would have been held that close to that city that night would have been Levitical sheep. The ones that Jewish priesthood would have owned and been looking at to be the next sacrifice for the sins of the people according to their sacrificial system. And if, in fact, these were Levitical shepherds taking care of the flock that would have been used in the sacrifice, those guys would have known the Old Testament rules. Those guys would have understood the Old Testament happenings. Those guys would have understood the specificity of how any sheep that was born without blemish, without spot, without being lamed or messed up or any kind, they would have known that those are the kind of sheep that the priests would have wanted in the temple and you look at the cloth that jesus was wrapped up in if a shepherd's out there in the field and a brand new sheep is about to be born and they spy that the sheep that was just born is in fact an unblemished male sheep really pretty not deformed super healthy looking what would they have done they would have picked that sheep up wrapped it in cloths cleaned it all off kept it safe kept it close made it available and ready so that when the priest came to pick up the sheep that they were going to sacrifice on the altar, it would have been a good one. Maybe the shepherds at your nativity are herding a lamb that was going to be used as the penalty of sin payment for people. Or maybe it was just a whole bunch of other nomadic people groups people that had been conquered by the Roman Empire, people that had been occupied by the Roman Empire, people that had been transported by the Roman Empire to live in and around that area, taking care of their sheep in whatever manner they were taking care of their sheep, ignoring any sort of oral tradition that says that they were way too close to the holy city of Jerusalem because they didn't consider any sort of holiness attached to the city of Jerusalem. Does it matter? Is your nativity changed 
when you look at the people that God called to visit the baby Jesus, being shepherds who were raising up good lambs to be sacrificial for people, or complete and total outsiders who had no understanding of what the sacrificial system was to begin with. The shepherds were invited by the angel to see a savior, but they were instructed to find a baby in a manger. Verse 11 said, For today in the city of David, there has been born for you. I know I said last week that the word fulfilled is a really good word in Scripture, but there may be no better word in Scripture than this passage, for you. And when you read that, and you interpret that as who this was for, it makes a difference. And he says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. John the Baptist, several weeks ago, Kelly Mentor was preaching about Mary and her introduction to the story, but she didn't just include Mary. She talked a lot about Elizabeth, her older cousin, who was married to Zechariah, the priest, whose job it was to go in and worship that year, and they were way too old to have kids, no judgment, way too old to have kids, and God yet blessed them with a pregnancy so that she was going to have John the Baptist, so that the second or third, I can't really remember what it looks like, but it's somehow cousins of Jesus. Fast forward in their lives, and he's announcing the coming of the kingdom of God, and he sees his cousin in the distance, and what does he proclaim? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world if, in fact, the shepherds on the hillside that day were Jewish shepherds who understood the sacrificial system and who understood their role in the sacrificial system to prepare the lamb to be slaughtered by the priest on the altar, walked into that room having seen an unblemished, perfect little baby lying in a manger referencing that this is going to be the Messiah, the Savior, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And nobody would have understood better than a shepherd who had been responsible for wrapping up unblemished lambs to see that baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger being for them. Sometimes people don't think that Jesus is for them because they're too good and they don't need him. And sometimes people don't think that Jesus is for them because they're too bad and they don't deserve him. While the New Testament was written in Greek, if we go to the Hebrew, the first language, the heart language of the shepherds, if we go to the idea of what that word stable means in the Hebrew language, it means to drop down low to be disheartened. For Jesus to come to that low place, for him to come to that low position, for him to come to that low of people, it makes a difference. These guys couldn't have ascended to a throne room regardless of who they were. They couldn't have walked into a palace. They couldn't even enter the temple. And so instead of them having to go to him, God came to a place they could come. He came to, to a place where the lowly could enter, where anybody could show up, even the worst of the worst. And if you want to go fast forward into Jesus' life, the thing that riled him up the most is a, is a, is, it, it, it's a foreshadowing of what's happening in this moment because he turned over tables in a court, angry by what was going on, 
Scholars would tell us that it's the court of the Gentiles where they were being price gouged, where people who were on the outside not allowed to enter in all of a sudden were coming in and they were having to pay premium prices for broken doves and messed up goats so that they could offer some sort of sacrifice and be a part of the system. If you want to talk about what angered Jesus with holy righteous anger in this moment, it was anybody on the inside doing whatever they could to keep people on the outside. So he comes to people who had never been invited in so that they could see him. That's the picture that we're given. So the shepherds are told, hey, you go into the city of Bethlehem for born to you this day in the city of David is a Messiah. And this is how you know you found him. You're going to get a baby and he's going to be lying in a manger. So suddenly... In verse 13, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. If you're a shepherd in this moment, you've never felt like the favor of God rested on you before. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they, they, they found Mary and Joseph. And Joseph, he's in the story. He's part of the story. He matters to the story. And the baby, nobody matters in the story more than the baby who was lying in a manger when they had seen him. They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. They just went back to shepherding. But they were different because now they were glorifying and they were praising God for the things that they had seen and the things that they had heard. Where are the shepherds at your nativity? Dive into their story. Figure out who they are why they were where they were, and why it matters that they were invited to come and see. The Charles Haddon Spurgeon morning and evening devotional, the entry on January 26th, is built on that Luke 2.18 verse, all that heard it. Everybody that the shepherds encountered that heard their report, were they wondered and were amazed at those things. He says, we must not cease to wonder at the great marvels of our God. It would be very difficult to draw a line between holy wonder and real worship. For when the soul is overwhelmed with the majesty of God's glory, though it may not express itself in song or even utter its voice with bowed head and humble prayer, yet silently adores our incarnate God is to be worshipped as the wonderful. He goes on to say, who can be astonished at anything when he has once been astonished at the manger or at the cross. You know, nothing would have shocked those shepherds after that day because they had seen the absolute greatest thing that they could ever see. And regardless of who they were, if it was Levitical shepherds who had been tasked with raising and selecting the next lamb to be slaughtered, You know, that system ended with the the burning of Rome and the tearing down of the temple. That temple that we just talked about in the book of Nehemiah, the one that was built in the book of Ezra, the wall that surrounded it, came like it got torn up again. The Romans, they just took it all out. 
and with it, the sacrificial system that they had used for generations was no more. Those shepherds, all of a sudden, if that was their role, it was all of a sudden gone, and a vocation in life that was already at the bottom was now completely obsolete of any sort of real purpose. If it was the shepherds who were responsible for caring for whatever next spotless lamb was going to be sacrificed on that altar, they had just seen the eternal spotless lamb that would be sacrificed for their sins. And if it was, if it was some other nomadic group who had no understanding of what that Jewish sacrificial system was, and yet the great God of this universe in that moment of foreshadowing was inviting them to be among the first to come and see, we can all, regardless of what side of the spectrum we come from, in terms of who those shepherds were, relate to why they were there. It says that those shepherds, they said, let's go see. Luke 2, 15, when the angel had gone and left them for heaven, they said, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that happened that the Lord told us about. And when we look at the shepherd's inclusion in the story, this is what we can learn. Who God was, the great shepherd of a people who were desperate and in need, who God was, the shepherd who provided the, the one and only spotless lamb that we all need, and also why God came to be that sacrifice, to save people from their sins and unite us with God in heaven. But not only that, we don't just get from the shepherds who God was and why Jesus came. We also get how we should respond. Let's go see. Let's go see the Christmas story. Let's go see the miracle of God. Let's pay attention to what we've heard. Let's go back to all the things that we've been taught and built a life of certainty on it. When you look back at what the angels said, it's basically six lines. Six little sentences. Hey, this is what happened. This is what's there. This is how you find it. They got six sentences. We have 66 books. We have all of church history. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. If six lines made them leave a hillside to go and see baby Jesus, what in the world is our excuse for not sitting in wonder at the Christmas story? and marveling totally at the thing that we've seen and heard. We certainly have our fair share of distractions about the holy event to keep us from focusing on Christ at Christmas. But look at what we have. Can't we sit in the same amount of wonder? And can't we go back to wherever it is we go back to? Where are you going tomorrow? Work, school, the mall. Where are you going? Can you go there with the same kind of amazement? Can you go there with the same kind of wonder? Can you go there with the same proclamation of the shepherds? And will the people that you encounter be blown away by the word that you give them about the baby Jesus? Would they sit and wonder too over the story that you tell them of what you've seen, of what you've experienced, of what you've heard, of what you're certain about? I wish we paid as much attention to Jesus at Christmas as these shepherds did. And we're invited to, we're invited to come and see. 
we're invited to herald and proclaim and help others see the reason why God came. That's the purpose of the shepherds, and that's what we are to relate to. This morning in our songs, we sang the joy of the Lord is our strength. The greatest asset that you have going out and handling the world that you live in is the joy of the Lord. And the greatest tool that you have at your disposal to change the world around you is the joy of the Lord that overflows inside you once you've seen Jesus. We sang Noel. You know, it just means Christmas. It's, it's, it's the French word for Christmas. As I'm told by some people who attend the first service whose first language is French and my high school daughter who takes French, whatever. Okay, it's Christmas. And, and the word Noel literally comes from a Latin word that means nativity, to be born. When we sing Noel, we're saying Christmas. When we, when, we, when we sing Noel, we're saying Jesus was born. People out there in the world who say Merry Christmas to one another for any number of reasons, they have no idea that they're declaring the birth of Jesus. One time my kids asked me, why do we call it Christmas in general? Well, it comes from the idea of Christ's Mass. And anybody in here with any sort of Catholic background will recognize the word mass because that's what you call the assembly that you go to on the weekends. Oh yeah, we go to mass. And mass doesn't mean coming together. Mass actually means going out. The word mass that we say, oh, we gather at mass this weekend on Friday or Saturday or whatever, like we go, I'm going to mass. It, it literally means to be sent out so that what you've seen, what you've experienced, what you've heard is something that you take with you out into the world. And the original Christmas idea is that it's Christ's Mass. It's the one where we focus on the birth of Jesus, and we're supposed to take that with us. Like the shepherds, we're supposed to take it with us wherever we go, and we're supposed to celebrate it as wildly as we can so that other people can see it and want to have certainty in the Christmas story, too. And there is a world outside around us that so desperately needs to be certain of something. What they really need is to be certain of the one thing that matters. It's Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day, for the chance to be in this place, for the invitation that you've extended to us to come and see. May we be a people who every year are so bound up in wonder and excitement and awe and joy, so full of celebration that we just take it wherever we go and that the people that we encounter experience the joy of Jesus through it. May we be a people who come and see, who recognize that we're invited who understand that we're not too low, we're not too far off, we're not too outside, to be invited to come to the inside and to see the gift that you gave and then to take that gift to others. Lord, would you call to mind right now people in our spheres and our circles of influence, people in our workplaces, people in our schools, people in our neighborhoods, people in our own families who do not have certain joy in Jesus. And would you help us to declare in awe and wonder how good you are, the reason he came, and why it matters so much. Would we see salvation spring up this year 
because of the message of the shepherds and because of the message of the people in this room. Would we see people come alive in Jesus and experience the joy of Christmas? Because we can't help but go back and talk about what we heard and tell people that we've seen Jesus. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it. And make sure you're subscribed and get notified so you never miss a sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app. Follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.